the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. So, what would it take for him to be fired? Have you seen any of the videos from the southern border? Have you seen any of the stories about the number of illegal immigrants who have come across it since Joe Biden has been president? And have you seen uh, what's been going on in New York up there where illegal immigrants are being put up in hotels? Tons of money it's costing everybody. And then, of course, they trash the hotels. Have you ever seen Alejandro Mayorkas testify in front of Congress and have no answer for what's going on down there? Have you heard him tell members of Congress that the border is secure? Could he be more incompetent or more deserving of being fired as head of uh, Homeland Security? Now, Joe Biden's not going to fire him. He either thinks he's doing a great job or he doesn't know who he is. But the Republicans had finally decided to impeach him. At least most of them had. Eight Republicans in the House voted not to impeach. Now, why is that? You know, why is it that we never hear stories about the Democrats who are trying to take advantage of their power and and coming uh, forward with an issue that they're really excited about and then being stopped by eight Democrats? It just never happens. Okay, there's Joe Manchin, but he's one guy in the Senate. The Republicans can always count on at least three to vote with the Democrats when they need them including their nominee for president in 2012. Remember him? And it's not like this is an issue that requires a lot of debate. Who doesn't think the southern border is a catastrophe? And Mayorkas has no defense. Now, Democrats sticking up for him is understandable. The problem is that Republicans saving him isn't the least bit surprising. When we come back, most college campuses are a mess, and it's because of what's been taught there for a long, long time. And it's really becoming apparent since Hamas attacked Israel. And in our second half hour, illegals have been voting in Pennsylvania for a long time. And your friends in Harrisburg are doing everything they can to make sure you don't see the proof. Stick around. Well, there are more reasons every day, I think, for parents to be really careful about where they decide to send their kids to go to college. Uh, and, And lots of reasons to question, I guess, whether they should go at all. Since Hamas attacked Israel, there are even more. Therese Trump, no relation to Donald, is executive director of Speech First, and she joins us now. Therese, thanks for coming back to the show. Appreciate it. Hey, glad to be back. Thanks. So what is Speech First before we go on here? Yeah, so we're a nonprofit membership organization, and we defend our student members' free speech rights on college campuses when those campuses violate their free speech rights. And we primarily do that through litigation. So we sue the universities, hold them accountable, not only in the court of law, but also in the court of public opinion. Additionally, we educate students on their legal rights and, you know, the Constitution and make sure they understand what their responsibilities are on campus to themselves so that they can stand up for themselves. How busy are you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's certainly been very busy over the last month, I'll say that. Um, But, you know, overall, I think everyone can admit when they look at the college campuses, they are not 
what we would consider the standard for respecting free speech rights and fundamental principles of the founding. Absolutely. Does free speech have to include people cheering for Hamas? <laughs> you know, in this country, we do talk a lot about and we boast a lot about our broad protections for free speech. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly there are going to be certain limitations when it comes to providing material support for terrorist organizations. Uh, but And that, in some cases, can include propaganda. But students do have the right to uh, rally in favor of whatever they consider to be the cause of Hamas or the Palestinian cause. Mm-hmm. However, there is a catch when it becomes when it crosses the line into true threats and inciting violence. So it's important that students, if they really want to make sure they don't cross that line, look at what the legal limits are, look at the case precedents, and it, make sure they're not essentially reading, leading a rowdy mob into viola- basically committing violence against their fellow Jewish students. So what have we learned, what have Jewish people learned about so many colleges now, especially in the Ivy League, since the attack on October, October 7th? Yeah, I mean, I think it's come to the, the forefront of, of the anti-Semitic uh, culture on college campuses. Is basically come to the forefront of what's been going on. Uh, you know, this is this has been a sentiment that has existed on campuses for a long time, actually. Uh, a lot of folks kind of ignored it or um, didn't want to draw too much attention to it. But there's been uh, a number of these groups, the Student Muslim Association and Students for Justice of Palestine. They always are trying to get the campuses to essentially discriminate against Jewish organizations on campus by having the campus participate in what's called the boycott, divestment and sanctions uh, movement, political movement against Israel. And there's been a number of other political movements that they've tried to um, basically get get the schools either participate in or try to try to be, make become active on campuses. Uh, in some cases, they're successful. In other cases, they're not. But this has been kind of a long going sentiment on college campuses. And honestly, I think the reason it's it's festered so much on campus is because we've seen a, a connection here with the, an ide- on, when you're looking at it from an ideological spectrum. You see a lot of this far left uh, radical ideology actually goes hand in hand with some of the stuff that the pro Hamas, pro Palestinian uh, students and faculty support which is they see the world through the view of, uh, through the lens of oppressors and oppressed. And they believe that there is a rigid division between those groups and that there's really no flexibility there um, and no, no room for debate or discussion um, about, about, or any kind of commentary about what's going on, whether it be in the Middle East or whether it be in the United States. And um, they also believe that the ends justify the means, which is a lot of times why you see surveys coming back saying that 30 percent of students across the country support violence against someone whose speech they disagree with. Uh, so that this is this is uh, unfortunately not a new phenomenon. I think we're just seeing a culmination here of what it looks like when this far left radical ideology is um, kind of walking step in line with some uh, something that has happened that was a horrific incident. Uh, that prompted this pro-Hamas uh, sentiment all over all over college campuses where people aren't afraid to speak about it anymore. What surprises me uh, a little bit is that um, Democrats, I'm sorry, Jewish uh, voters vote very much for Democrats, and which would tell me that the children of those Jewish uh, voters who have been voting for Democrats for a long time would be liberals um, and they're finding themselves, um, I don't know, it would seem to me that they're finding themselves feeling betrayed by people who, with whom they agree most of the time on most things. 
Yeah, I think they're coming to the realization that the people they've been voting for, the people that they've been advocating for and supporting, maybe don't have as much in common as they thought they did. Uh, I think there's there is um, a long history in the United States of the American uh, Jewish communities partnering um, ever since, you know, goes all the way back to the civil rights movement, partnering um, with some of the more liberal uh, initiatives because they kind of identified with, you know, as coming from a world that discriminated against them on a regular basis, they kind of saw, uh, you know, they saw overlap there and then friendship there and, and something that they could work together on when it came to equal rights in the United States. However, there's been um, clear discrepancies now. I think that they're, they're starting to realize that they've actually been voting for people who don't have their best interests at heart. Um, and again, this is something that comes back to really educating yourself. There's a lot of students who right now are getting caught up. You know, they they think that they believe in something and that they want to participate and be part of something. And then now they suddenly find themselves defending the actions of a world known terrorist organization, Hamas or Hezbollah. And they, they don't, I don't think really understand fully what that means or what they're participating in. Um, and this is something, you know, this is a teaching moment for universities. And I really hope universities start to educate students on what's unique about the American way of life and why we uh, don't approve of terrorist activity and why it's condemnable behavior. Um, it's sad that university leadership so long and so hesitant to just do something as simple as condemning terrorism, uh, which should be very easy to do. It's not a controversial position. Um, but the fact that they considered a controversial position is very telling about their own political agendas and their own fear of the woke mob on their campus. Yeah, you said that they many of them may not really know what they're supporting. Um, they've been told um, since they arrived on campus, maybe even in math class, about what a, a terrible place America is and uh, mm-hmm. colonization. And, and so does, do, do you think that some of the support for Palestine, they just, it's a kind of a knee jerk thing where, yeah, Palestine is a victim of colonization and uh, the, the Israelis are just like the Americans and I'm on their mm-hmm. side without really thinking about it. Absolutely. I think a lot of it does come down to that. I mean, we can go back to kind of like the Marxist, um, ideological viewpoint that kind of feeds into the far left radicalism. And that is, you know, this, again, the separating into identitarian categories by saying that you're in the oppressor group and you're in the oppressed group. They put Israel in the oppressor group. So they're, and, and they put America in the oppressor group. So therefore, um, they are both the enemies of this ideological perspective or this, this position. And that by saying that the Palestinians are the victims, then suddenly the deference is given to them to, to, to basically, uh, because of their lived experience as being oppressed or, you know, various other minority groups of their lived experience of being oppressed, suddenly they get to set the terms of the conversation. They get to set the terms of what's right and what's wrong. And that's just a very flawed way of looking at the world. And again, it's a very rigid way of looking at the world um, and doesn't leave any flexibility for dissent um, or debate or open discussion. And there is a serious double standard that has been, we, I think, what everyone is starting to witness and realize now on college campuses. You know, our organization has been talking about this for a long time, the level of viewpoint discrimination that we see when universities enforce policies solely against conservative groups or solely against groups they don't align with. Um, but there, I think it's coming to light now in light of all of this that there is a double standard because suddenly you see universities 
um, saying that they fervently stand by their free speech policies and that they're not going to stop the Palestinian groups from supporting terrorist organizations because they believe in free speech. It's like, well, you didn't believe in free speech just a couple of months ago when you were trying to shut down a turning point table uh, from from exhibiting their their idea that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Um, so all of a sudden, or you didn't you didn't believe in free speech when you wanted to force all of your students to um, basically use whoever's preferred pronoun regardless of what they believe in. Uh, so this is this double standard is coming to light, and my hopes is that it's starting to just shine a light more and more on the hypocrisies on campuses and how the university leadership is handling things. What does the defense that you get? When, when, when there's an incident where a conservative speaker is shouted down or they have to get security in to escort the person out of the building, when you contact the school or, or you threaten to sue, what's the defense that they throw up for that stuff? Well, in those situations that you outlined, they specifically will say that they believe it was a safety hazard. Uh, they'll oftentimes try to charge um, conservative groups or bringing conservative speakers on tens of thousands of dollars in security fees to the point where the student groups can't afford it and they have to cancel the event um, or they cancel the or the university just ups and cancels the, cancels the event altogether because they don't want to deal with what they consider security risks. I even went to go speak um, at a campus Trinity University down in Texas in San Antonio, and I had to get additional insurance per the university's demands because they weren't going to allow me to come on campus without it because of my last name of all things. They didn't even care if I was related <laughs> or not. Uh, uh, they, they just knew my name was associated with a certain viewpoint, which I informed them this is viewpoint discrimination uh, because I doubt if my name was Biden, they'd be making me get extra insurance. Uh, right. So this is just another, you know, again, the hypocrisies that we're seeing, the double standard that we're seeing of when they're enforcing. It is discriminatory enforcement, and it's specifically why the Supreme Court has ruled time and time again unanimously that there is no hate speech or offensive speech exception to the First Amendment because of scenarios like this where you have people uh, discriminating on how they enforce subjective and overbroad policies that are obviously designed to just be used against whoever they don't like or whoever they disagree with. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing, and we're talking to Sharice Trump. She's um, executive director of Speech First. Um, I'm, I'm guessing that, well, I, there's no way for you to know, I guess, but um, what, how genuine is their fear of or their need for security? And how much of it is just, uh, you know, just a, a way to prevent you from showing up? Um, it's a combination. It depends who you talk to. Some of them, uh, some of the administrators genuinely do fear the woke mob and they, they don't want controversy, right? Uh, one thing universities really pride themselves on is their reputation and uh, because that's what keeps the money flowing in. Uh, so their reputation, they, they, they kind of, they don't want to deal with, a lot of them don't want to deal with crazy protesters. They don't want to deal with upsetting um, or rocking the boat. Um, however, there are many administrators that I've witnessed um, at, at the highest leadership levels that have serious political agendas, and they intend to pursue those political agendas. Now, they often are found in things like the diversity, equity, and inclusion departments, um, where you see these uh, policies coming out that have clear intent to target students for their constitutionally protected speech, target students that they disagree with. Um, but there, you know, there are there are administrators who do have clear political agendas. They plan to exact those through the student populations by trying to manipulate them, trying to educate them uh, in a way that basically makes them very compliant. So one example that you'll see is we put a report out last year um, called Freshman Disorientation, and we FOIA'd um, 
you know, public universities across the country just to see what their freshman orientation materials were talking about because we wanted to know how far this went. And uh, we found that 91% of the materials focus on DEI topics, and that included things that were politically driven, such as social justice and Black Lives Matter, um, and, uh, you know, some, in some cases, the boycott, divestment, and sanction conversations about uh, colonization and decolonization uh, included a lot of language about anti-racism, which is essentially anti-white, uh, and include talk about microaggressions and trigger warnings. And so basically students are just hit over the head with the stuff the second they step on campus. And they're being told that they that there are all of these reasons why they should not trust one another, that they should be divided, that they should look to the administrators um, to basically hold their hands through this. And they should their default position should be to report anything that offends them uh, and that they should be very careful because everyone's so mentally fragile. Um, instead of actually talking about you know, the importance of viewpoint diversity and free speech and how that makes you more um, intellectually curious and how asking questions and open inquiry are so important uh, to the foundations of this country. Uh, they don't talk about that at all. In fact, we only found we found that only 30 percent of the campuses that we looked at even mentioned free speech or viewpoint diversity once. And of the campuses that mentioned those topics to the students in their freshman orientation materials, it was still a seven to one ratio of DEI to free speech and viewpoint diversity. So the campuses are not prioritizing this, which tells me that there is some malintent here, that there are bad actors who are trying to use these students as political activists for their own bidding. Uh, a little, little over a minute left here. Um, no, donors are starting to wake up and notice and pull their money out. Could this be the beginning of possibly at least, uh, I don't know, starting a turnaround and getting people to understand what's going on and maybe parents realizing that they should be a lot more careful about where they send their kid, especially if, if they're conservatives? Absolutely. I know universities try to fly above the line of the market and uh, the market economy, but look, the market has a huge role to play here, um, especially and especially when it comes to donors and alumni of these, organi- of these institutions. They have a say. They can pull their money out. If they don't want to support an institution that they believe uh, supports uh, terrorist organizations or has not made it clear whether or not it supports terrorist organizations, they absolutely have the freedom to withdraw their funds. Um, a lot of people are throwing around this term council culture as if you shouldn't really do that. That's bad. No, that's you know, this has always existed. People have not paid for things that they don't agree with always. And that's just something that's how the world works. Um, so, uh, you know, it is it is important that donors see that they have an active role here. Um, the alumni have an active role here to put pressure on the boards of these universities to get more involved and to demand more of their leadership of the universities. Because right now, the leadership of the schools is so used to kowtowing to the woke mob on campus that they wouldn't even know how to be independent thinkers if they wanted to try. And that's why we saw incidents while all these Ivy League schools like Harvard and UPenn and, and Dartmouth and whatnot struggle to go public uh, to publicly condemn something as simple as terrorism. When you say, why is it so hard to condemn terrorism? Why couldn't you just do that immediately? And it's, again, because they can't really think without considering uh, the political ramifications uh, on, on their own campus uh, for students who support terrorism. And that really shouldn't be something many people want to support anyway. So I, I think yeah, alumni and donors and parents all have a role to play here. Use the market economy to your advantage. Pretty sad, Sharice. Uh, I'm glad you're doing the work you're doing, and maybe you're beginning to have some real effect, and I hope it keeps up. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's Cherise Trump, and it's the uh, she's the executive director of Speech First. I'll be right back. 
Last Tuesday wasn't a good day for Republicans around the country, or locally for that matter, but that seems to be happening a lot lately. There doesn't seem to be a lot of talk about cheating this year, which everybody's expecting will happen next year, I guess. Uh, Jay Christian Adams is president of the Public Interest Legal Foundation. He always has an eye out for that. He joins us now, and Christian, thanks for coming on again. Hey, John, thanks for having me. So you've been trying to uh, get the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to... uh, uh, disclose records that show foreigners registering and voting in Pennsylvania elections uh, going back a long time. What's the latest on that? Well, it's amazing because don't forget, John, nobody's disputing the fact that PennDOT was allowing foreigners to register and vote for 20 years. And we know the number of somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 succeeded at this. And so we just asked for the records, as you know. We asked for the records under federal law. We have a right to see the records. How did this happen? How many registered? How many voted who were non-citizens? And the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has been stonewalling us since 2017. We actually won in federal court in Harrisburg. A judge ruled we got something called summary judgment. The lawyers listening know that that means it's a really good case when you get that. And the Commonwealth still didn't comply. They still, the Secretary of State, Josh Shapiro's administration, still wouldn't turn the stuff over. And they decided to appeal to the Federal Court of Appeals in Philadelphia. It's called the Third Circuit. So here we are, what, like six years in, and they're still hiding the ball. But why would the state be fighting so hard to keep the information from going public unless they were happily promoting it back then? Or the problem is so disastrous. That's the other possibility in my mind, that so many tens of thousands of foreigners and non-citizens were voting in Pennsylvania elections that they have to fight like crazy to hide the hide the facts from the public. Listen, even the legislature, John, asked for this information, and Shapiro and uh, your predecessor governor, uh, who I thankfully have forgotten the name of, uh, they wouldn't give the records over either. So this is this is an astonishing concealment of a disaster. Nobody is disputing, folks. Nobody is disputing that aliens, foreigners, non-citizens got on the voter rolls in Pennsylvania and voted. Even the state admits that. So the question is, how bad was the problem? Well, what's the state's argument, uh, publicly anyway, uh, for not for not wanting to disclose the information? Well, it, they they make a couple. They one thing they did is they had lawyers fix the problem. Like in other words, instead of having state officials in the election office figure out how bad it was and shut the valves off, they hired law firms to do it. So that's one way they're trying to hide it is they say it's attorney-client protected. So that's the sort of lengths they went to to hide this from the public. Well, here's how bad it is, John. We're going to the Third Circuit in Philadelphia. We're doing the briefing now. The United States Department of Justice, under Merrick Garland and Joe Biden, filed a brief on our side supporting us. That's how bad Pennsylvania is, that even this Justice Department is taking the side of the conservative organization trying to fight for clean elections. And what do you think... I guess you haven't seen it, or maybe you have, but what, what do you think if it, people are going to see if it is disclosed? Well, here's, here's the worst-case scenario and would explain a lot of their behavior. Let's say that the number of foreigners wasn't 10,000 and said it was 80,000 or 90,000. Let's, 
let's imagine that a sizable percentage of those were voting for governor, for president, for Commonwealth's attorney, for, for state Supreme Court, for Allegheny County Commissioner. That would really call into question the integrity of the elections of the last 20 years in close elections in Pennsylvania because you have non-citizens voting. We know non-citizens are voting, folks. That's not subject to debate. Pennsylvania admits that. The question is, how big is the problem? And, and also, what did they do to fix it? That's the other thing. They claim to have been fixing this the last couple of years, but they're hiding their work. It's like taking a test in school and giving yourself a grade and saying, nobody else can look at my score. Well, you, you can make the assumption that this would have helped Democrats because they're foreign uh, illegal uh, immigrants? Well, you know, that's a good question, and that's, you know, that's a secondary question to us, but since you've asked, look, we know what happened in Allegheny County because we got a lot of these records straight from Allegheny County. Uh, they gave them to us. They, they you know, surrendered the records uh, despite the fact that Harrisburg was telling them not to. And we got to see close hand people from Bangladesh registering and voting from, like, University of California and Pennsylvania at Pitt, Carnegie Mellon. Uh, we saw a lot, and you could see their party registration. Um, you know, it was Allegheny County, so that's, that's kind of different than if it's, like, Somerset County. Um, you know, you're going to tend to have more Republicans in places like Somerset. Now, now Westmoreland County, too, is going all Republican. Big flip from 40 years ago, huh? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> so um, were there uh, getting getting to the election for last week? And we're talking to Jay Christian Adams, president of the Public Interest Legal Foundation. Have there been any serious accusations of fraud that you're aware of in the elections last week around the country? Well, they're for sure. I mean, you had you had situations in Connecticut where you had people uh, shoving ballots into drop boxes that they weren't allowed to do. Uh, you're always going to have problems. Look, elections are never perfect. I know that that seems shocking, uh, but invariably you find these things out in time. Normally, and that, and that was part of the problem in 2020, you don't learn about voter fraud in the first couple of days after an election. It starts coming out over the weeks and months after an election. And um, what's going on down in Georgia? Defense attorneys for the state um, of Fulton County have withdrawn from the 2020 election. Uh, that's a mail-in ballot inspection case, and I guess it's back in court. Yeah, this thing's been kicking around for years now. It's like somebody who wanted to look at the ballots, and they were originally dismissed for lack of standing, and then they refiled, and they survived a couple death moments, like where they could have been dismissed and weren't. And, and look, it's not going to ultimately change anything. Uh, you're not going to redo 2020. You're not going to decertify. You're, we're almost on top of another election. But what we want to do is we want to pay close attention to the process. That's what we do at PILF, the Public Interest Legal Foundation. Um, you just got to stay on top of this and, and hold people accountable when they break the law. That's the bottom line. Whenever a state election official is not following the law, uh, that's when you have to come in and bring a case or a lawsuit in court uh, or wherever the problem is. But in this case, and I don't I pretend to know anything about the details of it, but shouldn't that just raise a red flag or two when the defense, the the, the attorneys defending the state against the lawsuit say, that nah, we're done. We're out of here. This uh, We don't like what's going on here. Yeah. 
look, Georgia, Georgia has a lot of issues uh, that, that are still being litigated in court. And, you know, there's, there's issues involving mass challenging that just ended a trial last week where people who were challenging hundreds of thousands of voters uh, had, a, had a civil rights case brought against them. Of course, you've got the criminal stuff with the indictments in Fulton County. It seems like in Georgia, like the calendar never moved off 2020. Yeah, and as you said, it's now it's now three years behind us, um, and we're you know we're uh, now less than a year away from another um, uh, national election. Is anybody going to ever have to pay a price for any of this? Well, as it relates to 2020, the only people who are going to pay a price are the uh, the people who've been indicted by the federal grand jury and the Fulton County prosecutor. They're going to pay a price. Some of them already paid a price. They've been disbarred. Uh, but as far as the people who manipulated the process, of course, they're not going to pay a price. What are you? Are you crazy, John? I mean, you, you expect <laughs> Mark Elias to pay a price? He's actually getting paid to have wrecked the 2020 elections with litigation that broke down all the safeguards, in my opinion. Uh, so, you know, the, 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 not only are the people who caused the mischief not going to pay a price, they're fat and happy to the uh, riding the whole way to the bank. We're talking to Jay Christian Adams, president of the Public Interest Legal Foundation. So, uh, Christian, did the Republicans lose a lot last week again because uh, they won Election Day but didn't win it by enough? Yeah, th- this is an ongoing problem. And, and you know what? There's a split even inside the, the Republican Party on this. Some factions want to start to play the game of getting early voting banked, uh, like I think in Pennsylvania, you see what happens. The, uh, the, the, the Democrats win with, when the early votes are counted. And um, it's because so much energy has been put into getting out that early vote among the Democrat Party, both in Pennsylvania and around the country. In some places, Republicans are trying to catch up uh, and, and take advantage of this new system we're stuck with. Uh, which I think is a bad system. Don't get me wrong. We should not have right, right. four four weeks of early voting. Well, the assumption is, I, I think, when when you first heard about well absentee balloting and then mail in voting and all the stuff that we've heard from uh, about the last few years, you start out, I think, with the assumption that you trust your government and. That it doesn't make any difference if I if I vote on October tenth or I vote on November fifth, my vote either counts or it doesn't. So, if if the fact that people are questioning it doesn't that indict it right from the beginning? That wait, so what? Is who cares when you vote? Just vote. Yeah, that's right, and it also calls into question if people are even thinking about what they vote for, uh, or you know, all this vote by mail and early voting and all the other procedures. Really, you're voting almost like your class and your race more than your ideas. It's the the Democrats view it as an expression of group will instead of a contemplative exercise. Who needs four weeks to pay attention to the election? You know, you're from a certain racial class, so just go vote. I mean, that's sort of what they're doing uh, when they do souls to polls. It's like get out the racial demographic. Uh, don't worry about what the issues are. Do it five weeks before the election's over. That's what's wrong with this system. I've written about it for over a decade, that it, it, it takes away the contemplative vote and turns us all into a bunch of tribes. How are you as an organization um, at uh, 
the uh, Public Interest Legal Foundation. Are you actively pushing to return to Election Day, D-A-Y? Yeah, we have a lawsuit in North Dakota uh, to do just that. It's still ongoing, John. And and North Dakota allows ballots to roll in for two weeks. Now you're saying, well, that's after the election. Okay, that's a problem. States are allowing ballots to come in for weeks after an election, and we think that's wrong. That Congress says you have an election day, and we want election day to mean election day. And so we're suing North Dakota to uh, to to have ballots count on election day, not weeks later. So we're doing what we can. In the case of before election day, you're probably wondering, well, that's already been decided by courts that if states want to do 45 days of early voting, that's up to them as long as it stops on election day. Was North Dakota that different from any other state? Yeah, they're the longest. They can, they allow ballots to come in longer than any other state. So you're talking about after? Correct. Um, and have they had any issues with that where the elections have been hanging in the balance, waiting for the last two weeks to come in? Well, there have been some close elections there. But the principle is that Congress passed a law. Congress said Election Day is Election Day. Everything needs to be wrapped up on Election Day as far as voting goes. And when you allow voting to occur, sometimes in North Dakota with no postmarks, these ballots are coming in for two weeks with no postmarks. So that's just to us. And I think most Americans want to get the election over with and not linger until like Christmas buying season. <laughs> yeah. Well, if if you if you uh, are uh, counting votes and you get a vote uh, the day after the election without a postmark, who would think that that vote should be counted? Yeah, that's exactly the problem is is uh, the, we're supposed to wrap this up. If you allow ballots to come rolling in in the U.S. Postal Service for weeks after an election with no postmarks, it invites fraud. It invites manipulation. It invites distrust. And that's why we're trying to sue to make it stop. I remember back in 2000 um, when uh, it was decided by, a, what, 547 votes or whatever it was in Florida, um, waiting for a long time for military votes to come in, absentee votes, because everyone was going to have to be counted. Um, and yeah. not a big deal was made of that. But that, it's been, since then is when they've started doing the, you know, vote anytime, anywhere routine. Yeah, and don't forget, John, Congress already spoke about military ballots. They passed an exception in Congress for the overseas voters. Um, in other words, Congress spoke about all of that, those folks, and there's an exception to that. And that's why we have what – I'll give you the name of the law – it's called UOCAVA. It's very complicated. UOCAVA. <clears throat> and that's the law that allows military voters to vote. But Congress spoke, and it didn't say everybody can send in ballots four weeks after the election. Only, you know, overseas voters can. So um, when Congress is silent, it tells you something, and we need to get the election over on Election Day. Well, Election uh, Day next year <laughs> figures to be a lot of fun, I think. Uh, that's... It's uh, less than a year away, and I'm sure you're going to be busy, but it's, it, it should be pretty interesting. Uh, Christian, thanks for coming on the show. Anytime, John. You have a great day. Okay, you too. That's Christian Adams, and it's the Public Interest Legal Foundation. I'll be right back. Imagine someone who lives in California 
voting for Gavin Newsom to be president after living under his rule for as long as uh, he's been. I don't know how long he's been in there, but uh, everybody knows what's gone on there. They, uh, U-Haul is running out of uh, trailers to rent to people to, to move out of the state. And uh, the latest is that uh, the big meeting coming up uh, out there and uh, uh, Joe Biden's going to meet with President Xi of China and other world leaders are going to be congregating there in uh, San Francisco. So it took him about 20 minutes to decide to clean up all the poop on the street and the needles and all the stuff and then and just clean out the uh, homeless encampments. And it was just so obvious that they did it because of uh, President Xi coming in. Um, and so they asked Gavin Newsom about it, and he, he said, if you have people over at your house, you're going to clean up the house. That's what he said. So he's actually admitting I guess maybe you should give him some credit for that. But he's actually admitting that, yeah, that's why we did it. There's going to be a lot of people here, and we want to look good for everybody. So he wants to look good for the president who's going to show up, who won't remember being there like 20 minutes after he leaves. But he, uh, but all the people from all the other countries, he wants to look good for them. But the people who actually pay taxes in California, um, eh, they doesn't, he doesn't worry about them. He let this go on for years and years. You've seen the pictures. It's just insane. We have a little, uh, we're starting to catch up here in Pittsburgh. We've talked about it here. Some of the scenes you've seen over on the south side with, uh, and even in downtown area, um, encampments uh, popping up, homeless encampments. But this guy, Gavin Newsom, who apparently has really nice hair, he's going to be considered a strong candidate, maybe the leading candidate for president, when Joe Biden finally decides he can't do it anymore or the Democrats decide that he can't because he's not going to run in 2024, at least I don't think. So, but, but it's one thing. It's the stupidity, the hypocrisy, whatever you want to call it, of what Gavin Newsom is doing. But there are people who vote for these people. And if Gavin Newsom ran for mayor of San Francisco, which I believe he was at one time, if he ran for mayor of San Francisco tomorrow, he'd win in a landslide. A landslide. And I hope he is their nominee for president, but, you know, it's pretty scary because he'd probably actually win. One other thing, I got about a minute here. There's a, a thing I saw up on Twitter. This is what we're dealing with. There's a woman, uh, you can see her on the video. She's uh, obviously a Muslim and she has her head wrapped and I don't know, you know, she's in the garb and she's running through the streets cheering and laughing and she's really really excited and it shows she runs up to her daughter and they embrace and they're just thrilled about something well this was uh outside the shifa hospital in gaza and this woman was just beside herself with joy because her husband had become a martyr he was dead okay and he was she was running to her daughter to embrace and jump up and down and celebrate like they just won a basketball game or something. Dead. A martyr. This is who we're dealing with. They are lunatics. How could you possibly even consider taking people who are this insane seriously? I'll talk to you tomorrow. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.